The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. We are heading down, down into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally published on July 7th, 2022, and it's called The Lesser of Two Crab Claws, Part 3. This is Part 3 of the series we've been running over the past couple of Saturdays. Uh, This is about asymmetry in nature. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three in our series on asymmetry in animals, uh, when the left and the right side do not match. If you have not listened to parts one and two yet, why not go back and do that first? Then you'll be all caught up. But in the last episode of this series, we were talking about asymmetrical development in the claws of the American lobster, or Homarus americanus, and how during larval development, the lobster's previously symmetrical claws differentiate into one real thick boy. It's a crusher claw. It's gigantic. It's got like molar-like teeth on it, uh, and it's got slow muscle fiber. And then the other one turns into a sharper cutter or pincher claw that can close very fast because of its fast muscle fiber. And we talked about attempts to pin down exactly why and how this happens at these early stages in lobster development. But there are other crustaceans where the mismatch between left and right is much more extreme than it is even in the American lobster. And I think we should begin this episode by considering the male of uh, the many species of fiddler crabs. Uh, So fiddler crabs comprise, uh, it's not just one species of animal, it's many species within a family of crustaceans known as Ocipotidae. And uh, once again, I think we keep saying it during the series, but this is one you should go and look up pictures of because you need to have it in your head. In some species, 
male fiddler crabs have one claw that grows not just bigger than the other one, not not even just significantly bigger than the other one, but hilariously bigger than the other one. Yeah, like, like going back to lobsters for a second, you'd be forgiven if you were just not aware of the fact that lobsters had this different this this difference between one claw and the next. Uh, you know, certainly many illustrations. I'm thinking like uh, restaurant logos and whatnot uh, may not even bother to make one claw look different from the other. But with the fiddler crab, it is very pronounced. It is uh, it is absurdly uh, different uh, one side from the other. Yeah, and for a bit of expert summary on what life is like for your average fiddler crab, I wanted to quote from a New York Times interview I was reading with a researcher named Sophie L. Moles, who is a uh, a scientist at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge and has done some research on fiddler crabs, including the use of a robotic fiddler crab claw that I want to come (laughs) back to later in this episode. But just in summarizing fiddler crab life, she says... They live in burrows, and you only see them at low tide. At high tide, they go back into the burrow and they seal it up. They feed on mud flats by sifting the sediment through their mouth parts and eating microorganisms. Mm, that's the the buffet of life. You just sift the mud in your mouth and get the microbes out. Uh, but uh, Moles goes on. The female has two little claws, two normal size claws for her, which she uses to help that feeding, to help pass the sediment up to her mouth. The male has one that it uses for feeding, and the other is huge. It's greatly enlarged to the point that it can be approximately half of his body weight. It's often really brightly colored as well. Now, what the males do is they wave this claw in a species specific pattern, so each species species of fiddler crab has its own kind of wave, and they do this to maintain a territory, but also to attract a female. Uh, so for for a rough analogy on the, the size and appearance of a fiddler crab claw, uh, just imagine an adult human that had one normal-sized right hand, but then a left hand with a digit span of about four feet, and that hand weighs 80 pounds. <laughs> yeah, one uh, one example of this was, was brought up in a book I'm going to reference in a bit, um, uh, Animal Weapons by Douglas J. Imlin. Uh, he says, if you're, if you're basically, if you're at the store, go pick up the largest bag of dried dog food that you can find and start carrying it around. And that will give you approximately what we might think of as the male fiddler crab experience. So, yeah. So imagine the largest size bag of dog food, not just you're carrying it around, but that is one of your hands. Yes. <laughs> and again, the other one is regular sized. So what what is going on with having a, cra- a crab claw that big? Well, it turns out that the main theory explaining this asymmetric uh, size difference in fiddler crab claws is much like the main theory for explaining the narwhal tusk, that this hugely asymmetrically exaggerated feature found in males is probably primarily a sexually selected trait, meaning it's more important for maximizing reproductive success than it is for direct survival value, though it may be in part uh, reproductively attractive, attractive to mates, 
because of some value it has in in helping maximize like burrowing. So, for example, uh, things that have been cited are that a uh, a male that has a very big claw can also probably dig a very big burrow, which is better for a female to go into to incubate her eggs. And also, like crustaceans tend to just keep getting bigger as they as they grow as they grow older. So, a bigger crab with a bigger asymmetric claw is also probably an older male, which is good in crab mating terms because that probably means he has survived more seasons of life and is just generally fitter, better able to survive and has good genes. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, part of the obvious uh, display here too is like, look at this thing I have grown. It is so big and yet I am still alive. I am able to sustain myself plus this massive claw. It's like the, the sports car of the crab anatomy. Yeah, that, that's another thing that has often been put up. There's sort of a theory in some uh, sexually selected traits in biology uh, that says, well, they may operate on the basis of essentially advertising a handicap. They offer a good faith display that even by working at a disadvantage, you're still fit enough to, to do well within your environment uh, by having this ridiculous thing attached to you. So a male fiddler crab is running around also basically advertising. I mean, this would be true of all the males with the big the big claw that they have basically halved their capacity to eat. You know, so these crabs eat by shoving mud and debris into their mouths, and that's true for males and females. But of course, you can't do that with that gi- gigantic claw. So essentially, the male fiddler crabs, they got them one good eaten hand, whereas yeah. females have two. Yes, absolutely. And you know, this is something that, uh, that, that Imlin gets into in Animal Weapons. Um, basically, you're getting into just the, the, the energy costs of having this gigantic claw. Uh, so some of this is going to be uh, a repeat of what we just said, but uh, it all kind of builds uh, together. So first of all, male fiddlers, uh, he says, burn a lot of energy just to have these, just to you know develop them and carry them around. Resting metabolic rates of males with big claws are almost 20% higher than females due to the cost of the claw. And then, of course, on top of this, you're going to have to scamper around. We see everyone out there, I, I think it's probably seen crabs uh, about doing, doing their business on the beach. Uh, you've got to scamper around. You've got to run with that giant claw. And so this is going to be energetically demanding as well. Yeah. Can, how fast can you run holding that dog food bag? Exactly. Yeah. This is, this is where he originally brought up the dog food bag. But um, he also cites a study. This one was really fun. Uh, this is a 2007 study uh, that was published in Functional Ecology by Allen and Leventon. And they were testing this out by putting male fiddler crabs on treadmills, little treadmills, inside of airtight boxes. <laughs> now, sadly, I could not find photos of this. I brought up the original paper and there were no photos or illustrations. So I, I only have my imagination to go on here. This is the shrimp in, uh, shrimp on a treadmill paper that you promised in previous parts. Right, right. Yeah, um, shrimp on a treadmill, for anyone not familiar, that frequently brought up is uh, there was an actual shrimp on a treadmill study, and it was used as a, an outrageous example of like, look at what the scientists are doing. They won't cure cancer, but they'll put a shrimp on a treadmill. Uh, and as we've discussed in the show before, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, these are not the scientists that would be developing the cure for cancer. These are the right. ones that would be studying, say, the metabolic rates of shrimp, or in this case, crabs. Right. They're not mutually exclusive pursuits to begin with. But then also, sometimes you don't even know what benefits that new knowledge about animal life could lead to down the road. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so the, this study put the, the crabs on the treadmills inside of the airtight boxes. And you might be wondering, well, why the airtight box? This sounds like something from a Saw movie. Uh, no, it's because as the crabs exert themselves, uh, they burn through oxygen and they produce CO2. And so the researchers are then able to measure the gas concentrations inside of the little boxes. And they use these readings to calculate the exact metabolic costs of running. As one might expect, the males with big claws burned more energy to run compared to smaller males, uh, males with the smaller claw, or females that, of course, just have two regularly uh, sized claws. Mm -hmm. And these big uh, males with the big claws also tired out more quickly. And then there's the impact on feeding, which we've already alluded to. You know, we, we've all seen a, cra a crab eat. Uh, I, I know we've talked about it on the show. Crabs disassemble their food. Uh, their claws and mouth bits work very hard to break everything down. Or in the case of fiddler crabs, they're often just uh, sifting through and finding those little tiny pieces to eat anyway. Uh, it's what Imlin describes as, quote, delicate and uh, tedious. <laughs> and with the females, it, mean, it often means the feeding claws are just working incessantly. Yeah, you can see video of this. There's just like a conveyor belt. They're just machines kind of shoveling the, the, the sediment into the mouth. But the male, on the other hand, like we've said, only has the one claw that's suitable to eat with anymore. He's got that big claw just setting there. And then the other claw, the normal size claw, is the one that he's using to eat. So uh, this cuts their energy intake in half, just as lugging the giant claw around increases their energy output. So they generally have to feed faster and or uh, more often in order to make up the difference. Right again, because you got they've they've divided their body into eating hand and and uh, handsome hand. Right, and uh, this is this complicates things for the crabs even more. Because remember, uh, this is not an apex predator we're talking about here. The crab uh, and the fiddler crab especially, they have to concern themselves with predators, especially of the avian variety. So, and so if the, you have this crab with this big claw that's having to do extra uh, feeding, that means extra exposure to potential predation. In fact, studies have proven out that these males are picked off by birds at an enhanced rate. Right. So you're saying uh, because it eats slower, because it can only eat with one of its claws, it has to spend more time outside the burrow, and that's got a target on its back. Exactly. Yeah, it's more time out in the open, more time exposed to to predators, and the predators uh, in many cases they 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 have adv advanced tactics for dealing with these um, these these either tired or distracted or essentially one clawed crab at this point uh, when it comes to the feeding process. Uh, Imlin points to a study from Christy Blackwell and Koga regarding fiddler crabs in Panama getting. Um, uh, basically taken out by grackles, uh, fed on by grackles, who uh, is a type of bird that have devised a diagonal feint attack um, uh, where they, uh, they, kind of, they come in, they kind of fake the crab out, and apparently this is even more effective on the male crabs. Now, you might think, well, but wait a minute. Um, having a bigger claw surely also means that that crab can pinch with greater force, which you would think could make it able to defend itself better, Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you you might you might think that, uh, but but then you know as we'll get into like these claws, uh, this big claw anyway, uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, that useful when you're dealing with something like a an, a hungry grackle that's sweeping mm -hmm. in at you. Uh, so like the end result is that the big clawed males they're easier to find, they're easier to pick off, they're potentially more tired, and 
also they're a better uh, they're, they're a better kill for the predator because that big old claw has big old meat in it. So there's every reason in the world to kill them and eat them if you were a grackle or some other hungry bird. Now, from what I've read about uh, fiddler crab claws, it seems like what they are most of the time used for is is pro- is probably visual signaling, but they are on occasion actually used for fighting or actually used as a weapon. Yeah, yeah. Imlin gets into this in the book as well, uh, highlighting particularly the work of uh, John Christie. Uh, I believe he was in the uh, the, f- the second study that I, that was cited there uh, that mm. we just cited. Uh, so basically, yeah, they wave them around to communicate their reproductive fitness. They do fight other male fiddler crabs with them. Uh, so they do serve as actual weapons in contests for those burrows that we were talking about. Uh, but Imlin writes that, quote, for every few minutes of outright fighting, males spend dozens of hours waving, in other words, communicating, showing off that uh, claw, saying, look, you know, look at this mighty claw. Imagine what I can do with it. That happened. That's that's what's going on most of the time. A very small amount of the time they're actually using it. So it's ultimately more of a deterrence than anything. And this is evolutionarily sound because fighting is dangerous. Uh, the battle itself is dangerous and um, can certainly be fatal to an organism. But fights can also just wound you. Uh, making you uh, more susceptible to predation. It may distract you and allow the grackle or some other creature to come in and, uh, t- and take you out. So even though there are hard disadvantages to developing such a deterrence, uh, and he, he compares this to other animals uh, as well, like anytime you see something that you might label an elaborate weapon uh, in uh, some sort of an animal's anatomy, there's a huge payoff there. Nothing is free. Nothing is cheap uh, when it comes to uh, to the development of these things. There's an energy cost involved. Uh, so even though there, there are all these disadvantages to growing, say, a giant uh, crab claw, there are also strong benefits in not having to actually fight all of the time. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think this this goes against our intuition because we think of fighting in terms of winning and losing. So, like, mm-hmm. a fight, it fight has a winner who wins, and thus they come out good. The effect for them is positive, and a loser who loses, and of course, the effect for them is negative. But in fact, in nature, I would argue that most fighting is probably actually lose lose because even the winner is probably uh, somewhat injured or tired out by the fight, putting them at a later disadvantage for survival, even if they come out on top in that particular struggle. Yeah, yeah. And all of this makes even more sense when you we start looking at the uh, closer at the scenario of these uh, of, of fighting and uh, and protecting these burrows and uh, trying to, to woo females. Again, the males set up shop in front of key burrows that are offered as brooding burrows to prospective females. And this is where they make their show. And this is where they fight if it comes to that. And the, the numbers here are apparently great. There are just tons of crabs out there. And they're, they're just face-off after face-off. Uh, and um, again, most of these face-offs are not going to result in a big uh, drag-out fight. A lot of them are just going to be displays. Uh, But still, uh, lifting that that crab claw in the air uh, to signal with it, that's going to have an energy cost. Uh, And so this is ultimately exhausting to many crabs. Crabs will eventually have to bow out and work their way back up to good burrows. So there's like this whole system of communication. Uh, Most of these face-offs don't rise to the level of, of full intensity battle. 
and the display of the claw allows the male crabs to easily determine who they have a chance against. So they're able to size each other up like, okay, this is a battle um, that I definitely can win and he knows I can win it. So we're done. This is a display only situation. Okay, he's a crab that can definitely beat me, so I'm not going to mess with him. Uh, we're just going to carry on our ways. This one, however, we're going to have to communicate a little bit and we might have to fight because we seem to be evenly matched. Yeah, that's actually the most dangerous situation is when it's not clear which one is stronger. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. 
It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, I wanted to come back to something, which was earlier I mentioned that uh, New York Times interview with the researcher Sophie Moles, who was one of the uh, authors of a paper published in 2018 in biology letters uh, called Robotic Crabs Reveal That Female Fiddler Crabs Are Sensitive to Changes in Male Display Rate. Uh, mm -hmm. The other authors here were Michael D. Jennings and Patricia R. Y. Backwell. Yes, I might have referred to her earlier as Blackwell. My apologies. Oh, I didn't catch that. You should apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to make sure I get the names right. Uh, yeah, I, yes. I, I, I think I had a typo in my notes there. So, but from the crab's perspective, I think it is important to realize that th this really is a study that involved creating crab sex robots. Like, <laughs> this is creating the, it was a, an attempt to create the hunkiest male robot crab claws that have ever been put together with the explicit purpose of attracting female fiddler crabs. So I'm just going to read directly from their abstract. Uh, they write, quote, Males often produce dynamic, repetitive courtship displays that can be demanding to perform and might advertise male quality to females. A key feature of demanding displays is that they can change in intensity, escalating as a male increases his signaling effort, but de-escalating as the signaler becomes fatigued. Here we investigated whether female fiddler crabs of the species Uca myobergi are sensitive to changes in male courtship wave rate, how fast the, the arm is waving. We performed playback experiments using robotic male crabs that had the same mean wave rate, but either escalated, de-escalated, or remained constant. Females demonstrated a strong preference for escalating robots, but showed <laughs> mixed responses to robots that de-escalated fast slow compared to those that waved at a constant medium rate. These findings demonstrate that females can discern changes in male display rate and prefer males that escalate, but that females are also sensitive to past display rates indicative of prior vigor. So if you are a male fiddler crab, it's not just important to have a big claw, but it apparently, at least with this species, is more attractive to females if you start waving it faster and faster as the female comes close to you. And uh, from this New York Times interview with the, the lead author there, Moles, uh, it was, uh, there was the question, were the females terribly disappointed when they realized they'd been tricked? You know, what happened once they finally got up to the, the waving robot arm that they were so interested in? Well, Moles says, quote, once they got to the robot, they would touch the base plate of it and realize there's something wrong here. It's not <laughs> real. And they would usually at that point stop moving or run away. Some of them actually responded as if he were a real male crab, which is by tickling him. What the females do is go up to the male and use their legs on one side of their body to tickle him. This communicates to him that she's interested in him as a mate and not just trying to steal his home. So this, this stuff. Study did indeed implicate female fiddler crabs tickling metal base plates because they thought it just that claw is so huge it's swinging so fast i've got to believe it's it might be a real crab this sounds like something that could be factored into uh, i don't know battlestar galactica sort of situation yeah like, oh, the, the, the replicants the, the the robots they look just like us they behave just like us except um uh, tickling them will reveal their true nature 
Anyway, in the spirit of, uh, of our enthusiasm for the shrimp on the treadmill, the crab on the treadmill, I want more studies with robot crab hunks. We have to build the most attractive male crab that has ever been, uh, that has ever existed on Earth. And, uh, but we, I guess we have to be careful with it because we don't want to drive crabs to, uh, to extinction by like now, now the real crabs only desire the robot. It's weird how this does line up with the, the sort of trope of the, the muscle man on the beach attracting <laughs> yeah. the women and, and the, and the nerd that's, uh, that's also inevitably on the beach as well and may get sand kicked in his face or whatnot. Um, uh, but it also does bring to mind, like, even with, with humans, there's sort of, there's there's fitness and there's like visible fitness, but then there's also like fitness to the to the level where it's no no longer purely functional anymore. Like mm-hmm. there's like for instance, there's the muscle that might aid in the delivery of a punch, and then there's like the 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 the, the muscle uh, buildup that say makes it harder to move around or or makes it you know <laughs> more difficult to say touch portions of your back that sort of thing. I totally know what you're saying, though. I also that reminds me, I, I always want to caution people, you know, just don't don't try to extrapolate too much from from right. animal sex and attractiveness studies to humans, because, you know, crabs and humans are pretty different. Right, right. And certainly the the, the reasons that humans do things um, and uh, and the way they react to things are generally there's a lot, a lot more going on. There's a, there's this whole level of human uh, complication that's taking place on the surface of uh, whatever else is going on. All right, after we've talked about all of these examples of animals that broadly have bilateral symmetry, but then some major deviation from it, I've been thinking about how symmetry and asymmetry come about at the cellular level. Because, you know, you can imagine why it would be genetically efficient to have bilateral symmetry. Like, you you just basically need half of a body plan, and then you just copy it over on the other side. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but within that broadly symmetrical framework, you know, we get these deviations, major and minor, and it's not all narwhal tusks and fiddler crab claws, things that are like huge and noticeable. There are plenty of forms of asymmetry that are common but harder to spot, such as the orientation of internal organs, you know, your digestive tract and its associated organs and uh, your heart and circulatory system are all asymmetrical. They have different organs and pathways situated on the left and right of the body cavity. And there are also minor, more invisible variations at the cellular level in uh, within mostly symmetrical creatures like us. So how do these deviations from perfect symmetry come about at the level of cell division, which is actually, you know, actively building your body's tissues? How do the cells know which side is which and how to do something different on the left than what they're doing on the right? Well, one jumping off point here is uh, I came across an interesting article about this in Quanta magazine from January 2017 by uh, Tim Verneman called How Life Turns Asymmetric, which is worth a read in its entirety. But I I just wanted to summarize and jump off from a few things I uh, learned from it. And one of the big takeaways is that I think we have some good answers about uh, at least some strong factors for uh, like mammalian or vertebrate uh, symmetry and symmetry breaking. Something We know some things about the genetic and cellular basis for asymmetry in the body, but we still don't know everything yet. And so one of the uh, ideas that gets brought up in this article is the nodal lefty genetic connection. And it goes like this. Since the 1990s, scientists have been studying a gene called nodal, N-O-D-A-L, 
which appears specifically on the left side of the developing embryo of, uh, uh, at the time this article was written, they said every vertebrate animal yet studied. And associated with this gene uh, is uh, a somewhat confusingly named gene called Lefty, which appears to work specifically to suppress the nodal gene's activity on the right side of the vertebrate embryo. So the purpose of Lefty, uh, if I understand correctly, appears to be something like telling the right side of the body not to do left side of the body stuff. (laughs) According to the Harvard biologist Cliff Tabin, the nodal lefty gene combination seems to be the main genetic factor guiding asymmetry in animals, uh, or at least in vertebrates. So how does this difference get expressed? Well, another biologist named uh, Nobotaka Hirokawa has offered an explanation that has to do with cilia. Cilia are little hair-like or thread-like projections. Technically, they're a type of organelle which stick up from cell membranes within the cells or of uh, eukaryotes, and they serve various functions like gathering sensory information for cells or facilitating the movement of cells through fluid. So uh, you might uh, read about uh, cilia motility. These, these things often move back and forth, though actually they're divided into uh, motile and non-motile cilia. So how would tiny hairs sticking up off of cell membranes have anything to do with the body of a vertebrate splitting from perfect symmetry into a differentiated left and right half? Well, one uh, fascinating clue came in the form of a rare genetic disorder found in humans known as Cartagener syndrome. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it's spelled K-A-R-T-A-G-E-N-E-R, Cartagener syndrome, uh, which presents most often in patients as uh, patients with continued respiratory problems, such as recurrent lung infections and sinus problems, and also sometimes infertility. It turns out this condition is caused by a congenital defect that prevents the body's cilia from functioning as needed. So these little hair-like projections on cells don't function as they normally would. Uh, Now, why would that affect respiration? Well, of course, the inside of our breathing passages are lined with cilia, and these cilia need to move in synchronization uh, for, I think, multiple purposes, but one of them is to help clear breathing passages of mucus. And this disorder causes the cilia to have trouble, again, with motility, with movement. And so they can't really synchronize, they can't really work together to get the mucus out of the the lungs uh, and out to the throat to prevent infections. Now, strangely, this disorder affecting cilia also frequently coincides with a seemingly totally unrelated issue, About half of people diagnosed with Cartagener syndrome also have their internal organs flipped. Their body is a mirror image of what a thoracic surgeon would expect to see if they open you up. So, you know, the heart on the right and the liver on the left and so forth. That's right. Yeah, the, the, uh, if we're looking to spy literature, of course, if we look at Ian Fleming's uh, Dr. No, we might remember Dr. No has this where his heart is on the other side of his body. And oh, that's how I didn't he survives. Know uh, I think he survives an assassination attempt at some point uh, because of this uh, anatomical quirk. Oh, I see. Somebody shoots him on the wrong side. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. That's a good twist. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Well, anyway, so you have that association. People who have this uh, who have this congenital condition affecting uh, proteins that in turn affect cilia. 
they also, half of the time, their organs are, are flipped opposite of what you normally see. On top of that, there was a 2015 paper in Nature by Lee et al., which uh, uh, Verneman uh, in the article points to, called Global Genetic Analysis in Mice Unveils Central Role for Cilia in Congenital Heart Disease. And this paper apparently found multiple instances of genes where if the gene was defective, the mouse presented with some kind of unusual issue related to symmetry and asymmetry in the body. Some issue with the, the halves, left and right. And in those instances, the gene was somehow also related to cilia. So these clues uh, indicate that somehow cilia may play a role in symmetry breaking during mammalian development. Uh, so how could this be? Well, a leading explanation has to do with something called dorsal flow and a little patch on the surface of mammalian embryos called the ventral node. So if you're looking at like a, a mammalian embryo, the ventral node is a little pit or depression on the underside or the bottom surface, and the pit is ciliated, meaning it's covered in cilia, these little hair-like or thread-like projections. And the explanation goes that the waving of cilia in this little pit create a consistent direction of flow in the fluid around the ventral node. So the cilia rotate to get the fluid moving, and then they keep it moving in a consistent direction. The fluid is always moving to the left along with the, with the way the cilia are waving. And the direction of this flow seems to cause a chain reaction that results in changes in gene expression, specifically in the asymmetry genes, coming back to, again, nodal and lefty. Hmm. So apparently if the cilia are having trouble with motility, the unidirectional leftward current of fluid is not established and the symmetry-breaking genes aren't expressed as they would normally be, which can lead to deviations from the type of mammalian asymmetry we would, we would see in most, uh, most members of that species, such as creating a, a condition where the body 50% of the time can have its internal organs flipped. Hmm. However, this can't be the only factor leading to standard uh, symmetry-breaking in animal bodies. Uh, Verneman's article also cites a Tufts University biologist named Michael Levin, who points out that some animals, even some mammals, don't have that ciliated dorsal node we were just talking about. And uh, Levin believes there's some involvement of a factor called the cellular skeleton, or the cytoskeleton. Did you know that your cells have a skeleton of their own? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I guess I'd heard the word cytoskeleton, but I hadn't quite put it together. It's not exactly like your, your bigger skeleton. I mean, it's not like bones. The cytoskeleton is a, a system of protein filaments that are, at least in a metaphorical sense, sort of like the bones of a cell. Uh, to describe them, I want to quote from a 2010 review in Nature by Fletcher and Mullins. Quote, The ability of a eukaryotic cell to resist deformation to transport intracellular cargo, and to change shape during movement depends on the cytoskeleton, an interconnected network of filamentous polymers and regulatory proteins. Uh, 
Recent work has demonstrated that both internal and external physical forces can act through the cytoskeleton to affect local mechanical properties and cellular behavior. Attention is now focused on how cytoskeletal networks generate, transmit, and respond to mechanical signals over both short and long timescales. An important insight emerging from this work is that Long-lived cytoskeletal structures may act as epigenetic determinants of cell shape, function, and fate. And it's exactly this last comment that I think is most relevant here, because in the case of symmetry breaking, it may be that features of this cellular skeleton, this system of sort of strands of of polymers and proteins that help give a cell its shape and help it uh, resist deformation when it's under pressure and things like that, that that the system may ultimately epigenetically determine the development of cells and ultimately the handedness or asymmetry of the whole body. Oh, wow. This was uh, so this next part was also a surprise to me. I don't think I knew this. Apparently cells themselves have a kind of handedness or asymmetry. Some cells are sort of left oriented and some are right oriented and you can see this in their behavior when they're moving through fluid and they come up against an obstacle. So uh, there, you, you can have experiments where you show that cells are flowing ar- along in a controlled environment and then they bump up against something, they bump a surface. When that happens, the cell will tend to turn in one direction or the other. And that preference for a particular way of turning tends to remain consistent for each cell. You have sort of left turning cells and right turning cells. And experiments in fruit flies demonstrate that these small differences at the cellular level can snowball into major morphological differences at the body level. Verneman's article mentions uh, researchers named Leo Wan and Kinji Matsuno, who each identify proteins within the cellular skeleton, specifically the uh, actin and uh, myosins, as having an influence on whether a cell becomes left-handed or right-handed. And uh, there, there may also be some interplay between proteins in the cytoskeleton and the asymmetrical expression of the nodal gene, uh, each playing a role. Uh, but then there's one more thing that gets mentioned toward the end of this article, uh, the, the Quanta article that I thought was interesting, which is that uh, other factors leading to asymmetry, of course, there might be some that haven't been discovered yet, but one candidate has to do with communication between cells, uh, for instance, based on the relative prevalence of proteins on a cell's surface, which would in turn determine how cells trade electrical charges back and forth between each other. And uh, the Quanta article cites uh, Michael Levin again, saying, quote, if we block the communication channels, asymmetrical development always goes awry. And by manipulating this system, we've been able to guide development in surprising but predictable directions, creating six-legged frogs, four-headed worms, or froglets with an eye for a gut without changing their genomes at all. And in a final twist, bringing this back to medicine, uh, it's interesting that all of this knowledge might one day be useful in finding treatments for pathological growth and development patterns in somatic cells by sort of harnessing these systems, by harnessing the body's existing mechanisms for detecting and uh, and directing its own shape, uh, you know the the way the cells come together to to form larger structures that might be harnessed uh, for for treating cases where cell uh, cell development is going wrong. 
Yeah, that that's fascinating. You know, coming back to what you said earlier, I I don't know if prior to this, if someone had just you know stopped me on the street, like a man on the street uh, reporter situation, and asked me if cells have a skeleton, if I would have been able to uh, correctly answer regarding the the cytoskeleton here. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is pretty fascinating, and then to to get into its. Um, uh, sort of the ramifications of that and how that uh, ends up uh, being reflected in the uh, the left-handedness of the of the overall system or the right-handedness, whichever the case may be. You know, I have to think back once more to the, the cockeyed squid, uh, histiotuthis, uh, that we discussed in, uh, what was this was the first episode. Yeah. Uh, w- one of the reasons to marvel at this amazing creature is that its eyes have evolved to look in different directions, to different realms of the ocean, light and dark. And this seems understandably strange and alien to us, uh, but perhaps less so when we remember things like left-handed and right-handedness, when we think about neural asymmetry uh, that defines us on the inside. Uh, And and of course, it's not just us. Asymmetries between left and right side of the nervous system are present throughout the animal kingdom, from invertebrates to mammals. And as um, uh, one source I was looking at, uh, this is by Concha, Bianco, and Wilson in Encoding Asymmetry Within Neural Circuits, published in 2012 in Nature Reviews Neuroscience. Uh, The theoretical advantages of brain asymmetry include the capacity for parallel processing, uh, the specialization of left and right sides for distinct computations, and the restriction of information processing within local circuits with short, fast connections. But while there are obvious advantages to brain asymmetry, uh, uh, are there advantages to brain symmetry? Uh, So I was looking into this a little bit, and I I read some thoughts from uh, Marco Dada of the University of Padua, who experimented with the often lateralized fish species, the gold-belly top minnow, in 2009. Basically, what this experiment consisted of was dividing these uh, top minnows, these gold belly top minnows, into groups of left lateralized, right lateralized, and non-lateralized specimens. So the seeming advantage to the non-lateralized came when judging stimuli to either side of the creature through either eye. Uh, The experiments involved judging advantageous shoals of fish to join on either side. Remember, you're a small fish in the ocean. Uh, There's a lot of survival advantage in being able to determine uh, which shoal of fish you should take refuge in. Uh, There's strength in numbers. And so it seems that in these fish, having a lateral tendency, most, uh, uh, most often they just join the shoal that they saw with their dominant eye. Hmm. Uh, so I guess, I guess the take home here is that in, in some cases, yeah, it's gonna, it, it may come down to your dominant side is just going to be the, the tendency that you go in uh, and it's maybe going to potentially get in the way of if, if, uh, properly evaluating, in this case, two different shoals of fish. I, I don't have evidence of this in front of me, but it makes me think that sh- surely things like this must also be true, even with uh, uh, you know brains we would think of as more complex. I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. even with humans, handedness probably plays a role in like directional reactions to fast. Sti- you know, something pops up and scares you. Which direction do you bolt in? I will. I would be surprised if there is not some kind of uh, tendency there that's not purely dictated by where the stimulus is, but also has to do with like body side dominance. Yeah, and by body side dominance and left handedness and right handedness in human beings, 
this is something I think we'll have to come back to in a, a future episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of great research out there, particularly when, again, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about how uh, you have whatever's going on on the animal level, and then you have the human complications involved there. Because, yeah, when you start getting into whole situations of, okay, you have a, a, a right-handed dominant society, and then you have left-handed individuals within that society, uh, you know, what, how, what is the impact? And uh, and of, of course, there's a, there's a lot of uh, there have been a number of interesting studies over the years that have looked at this, how it plays into sports, how it plays into uh, conflict and combat, uh, how it just plays into thinking about the world around you. So uh, that would be a fun one to come back and uh, and do. And I know that the lefties especially will love it. Oh yeah. But righties, you're most of our audience, so don't worry, you'll like it too. You're just less special. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, should we wrap it up there? I suppose we should. Uh, so we, ho- we hope that you've enjoyed this uh, partial journey through uh, asymmetry. Uh, like we said, there, there are plenty of other examples of asymmetry in the animal world. We, we tried to focus on uh, some of the, uh, the, the examples that uh, you know, illustrated uh, the, the topic the best. Uh, but perhaps you're thinking of something we didn't mention that bears mentioning. Write in. Let us know. Uh, let us know if you're interested in uh, an episode in the future about uh, left-handedness and right-handedness in, in, uh, in humans. Uh, anyway, you look at it, just write in. We'd love to hear from you. Past episodes, future episodes, present episodes, it's all fair game. Uh, we read those on Mondays on Listener Mail and the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, short form artifact or monster fact episode on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we put aside most serious concerns and we just watch a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. 
Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.